Now let's pray together. Father, we just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us this morning that this ancient word, this ancient book of Ezra, as we look at it, will speak into our lives today, that you would help us to apply what's in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Mene, Mene, Tekel Parson. A hand had appeared out of nowhere and wrote on the palace wall, and King Belshazzar's knees trembled. The king who just moments before was abusing, mocking, and ignorantly taunting the Most High God is made to tremble, now weak and frightened. He'd ordered that the gold and silver goblets that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be filled with wine and used at his party, that he and his guests might bow down, as it were, to human power, to gold and silver, to wine made by human hands and the sensuality of purposeless partying. But the tide was about to turn. King Belshazzar and his nobles had no frame of reference for this hand that had appeared out of nowhere. They didn't understand the words that were written. And in panic, it was the queen who remembered Daniel. Daniel. She remembered this this man, Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had trusted him to have sort of wisdom like the gods. And so Daniel, in his older age, yet again is brought into the central power base of the kingdom and yet again is unfazed by that power, for his heart is aligned with true power, the only true power, God. And Daniel explains to them what the words mean. Mene, it means God's numbered your days. Tekel, you've been weighed and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Belshazzar, who had set himself up against the Most High God, is slain, and Darius the Mede takes over the kingdom, and the tide begins to turn. Long before all this, God's people had messed up. Moses had said to them as they'd entered the promised land, listen, you can see it in Deuteronomy chapter 20. He says, listen, guys, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. So now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But they failed to love God. They failed to listen to God's voice. And they failed to hold steadfast to him. And so God lifted his hand from them for just a moment. And in swept the Babylonians, plundering them, enslaving them, and carrying them off from their precious land. 
to Babylonia. Yet, for those with ears to hear, God had not left them without promise and hope. God is merciful and would not punish his people forever. Before the Babylonians had even turned up, God said through Jeremiah the prophet, the land will become desolate, the people will serve the king of Babylon, but after 70 years, they will return to Jerusalem. And here we find Daniel, an exile in that land, knowing the ancient prophecies and praying. God, he prays in the book of Daniel, bring about that fulfillment. You said 70 years. Come on, God, bring your redemption. And it's here that we land with the book of Ezra, where we start with it. Here at the book of Ezra, we find ourselves at a critical point in the history of God's people, and also a critical point for a bit of a spiritual checkup. And it's one we can just really practically take with us today. It's very simple. How am I doing at loving God? How am I doing at listening to God's voice? And how am I doing at holding steadfast to God? The book of Ezra brings us to a critical moment of spiritual checkup. We'd failed to do it. And now we've got a chance for a reset moment. How are we doing? And for some of us today, you might just want to switch off from the rest of the sermon and just chew on those questions for a bit. How am I doing? How's my spiritual life going? Not what's God doing for me? What's God doing in me? But how am I doing at loving God? How am I doing at listening to God's voice? How am I doing at holding fast to God? And so as we enter this book of Ezra, we have this incredible book that documents for us in the Bible the second exodus. The struggles of a tiny remnant, the revival they experience, and the very real challenges they face. And I think in many ways, we're not in a dissimilar situation today as the people of Ezra were, of Ezra's time. You see, perhaps we live at a time when nations that seemingly once held more firmly to Christian teachings no longer do say. There's much to be very sad about, isn't there, as we see folk turn their backs on God's ways and all the consequences that follow from that. I had the chance to read a really interesting um, book called God is Back, and it's written by an atheist and a Catholic. They um, decide to jointly write this book together, and they document faith around the globe, and they essentially come to the conclusion that faith in God is alive everywhere except at Harvard University and in Western Europe. If that's true, we live in a time right now where we are living in a place that by and large is rejecting God or has rejected God, but we're in a minority in the global sense of things. It's interesting times, and I think not too dissimilar in some ways to where the people in Ezra's time found themselves. 
Interestingly, uh, Bishop Richard Chartres, who retired from being the Bishop of London not too long ago, helpfully said this. He said, hang on in there and be ready. God is at work, even in Western Europe. And he said, through all the changing years of life, eventually our society with its vacant philosophies will likely implode and once again find itself drawn to the enduring themes of the gospel, which have proven to stand the test of history whilst kingdoms come and wane. It was, of course, to the people of Ezra's time that the prophet Zechariah came on the scene and said these famous words, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. It was to this group of people that he spoke those words. And I firmly believe that we are in a time in this nation where God's church is being called back to a fresh reliance, not upon our past privileges, not upon our intellect, not upon any other strengths we might bring, but to a fresh reliance upon his spirit. It's why we've been really persistent in um, pursuing having that prayer chapel space at St Albans. For us as a community to have a protected space here in Chiswick where we can pray and say, it's your spirit we rely on, Lord. We know that nothing that will endure will happen unless it's by a work of your spirit. And our nation needs that. The tide was turning and it always does. And so it came to be that Darius the Mede was the governor who took over from Belshazzar. And he was under the leadership of a guy called Cyrus that we have mentioned in our first chapter in Ezra. It was under Cyrus's overall leadership that a new philosophical approach was taken towards the nations that had been captured. And so we see at the end of the book of Chronicles and the start of Ezra something absolutely remarkable. It says in those books in our Bible that God moved in the heart of a pagan king. God moved in Cyrus. And unlike Pharaoh before him, he willingly allows God's people to return to their own land and to build their temple The tide was turning. Cyrus was quite a remarkable leader. In verse 2, we find a pagan king acknowledging that he only has power because God has allowed it. The Bible is very, very clear that it's God that moved in Cyrus's heart. Cyrus may have thought many other things were going on. In fact, I think the chances are that as a powerful man, he did. He may be thought that he was being quite strategic. I know I'll let these people go back to their own land because ultimately I still kind of control the whole area and they'll be more loyal to me if I've let them go rather than them kind of gaining strength amongst us and there being this kind of ongoing tussle of kind of these Israelite people being amongst us. Maybe they'll be more loyal if I let them go. Maybe that was going through his mind. Maybe, just maybe, he'd heard the gossip. You see, 
You know, as soon as someone mentions you on social media, the first thing you do is go check it out, right? You want to see what they've said about you. Someone's put your name in their post or, like, you know, they've tweeted you or something. You want to go and find it out straight away. Well, Cyrus had been uh, tweeted about. Years ago, years, years ago, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44, had prophesied years before that a man named Cyrus would arise and that he would help Jerusalem be rebuilt. Perhaps Cyrus had heard the gossip. Perhaps he was rather flattered that he had been chosen by the Almighty God. We don't know what motives um, might have been going on in the heart of Cyrus. But the Bible makes it absolutely clear that whatever was going on for him logically or in his heart, that it was God that was orchestrating it all. That God is sovereign. And at this moment, the tide was turning for his people. When we tell the story in years to come of St. Albans and this church giving it a go and and taking it over, maybe we could talk about the fact that local residents fought to stop it being turned into flats, that, you know, they probably didn't want more cars in the area taking up their parking spaces, and we could tell the story like that. Or we could say, do you know what? Yeah, all of those things were going on, but ultimately it was God that allowed the situation to be possible for us to step out in faith and give it a go. You see, God is in control, and ultimately, whatever happens, whatever happens, his purposes won't be thwarted. So in one sense, for Cyrus, this was just another people group that he allowed to return. But for God, this is a significant point in his story. Fyle says this, For God, this is part of the great story which began with the creation of heaven and earth and will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. We need to view our Christian work in that light and not be overwhelmed if the establishment tried to suppress the church, nor overexcited if the establishment favours it. Both are phases through which God's purpose will be worked out. So Cyrus decrees for the temple to be rebuilt. And the remarkable thing in verse 1 is that not only does he say that, he also writes it down. And this is really significant because as we read Ezra, we're going to find out that there are times when God's people are forced to stop their building. And they find in the ancient archives that Cyrus had written down that they could do it. And then they're allowed to restart building again. And so God was in so much control of what Cyrus was being used for in what he said, but also in what he wrote down. Isn't that amazing to see God's sovereignty being worked out in a very tangible and practical way? 
Now, I wouldn't blame you if you were listening to all this and thinking, what is she going on about, in a way? I don't really know the story of Ezra very well. I'm definitely going to have to go home and read it and pick up the study notes. Um, it is a book of the Bible that's not preached on very much, but it's one of my favorites. So I encourage you to, to give it a go as we go through this series. And you might be thinking, what on earth were God's people doing, being called to rebuild a ruined temple? Why, what is the point? Haven't they learned that God is too big to be contained in a temple? They learned that surely in two chronicles Solomon said the temple can't contain God what on earth are they doing fussing with bricks and mortar and and New Testament Christians that we are today we think what are we doing fussing about bricks and mortar the church is where the spirit of God resides where his people are gathered that can be in a cave in a cathedral it doesn't really matter why are they doing this and it's a good question and it's one that must be answered Firstly, they're doing it as an act of obedience. It was, in fact, God who very clearly moved in Cyrus's heart and in theirs, who calls them to the rebuild. It was about establishing their priorities. It was to be a physical representation that before even their houses were fully rebuilt, before they'd even rebuilt the protective walls of the city, They were to establish the temple as a symbol that they were desperate, foremost, for God's presence to reside with them. It was symbolic of them choosing to worship God with the whole of their lives and knowing that they needed to receive forgiveness through the sacrifices and prayers that were offered as they gathered in that place. The fall means that our relationship with God is broken. And so there's a need to find places where we rebuild that in worship and prayer. And of course today that can happen in any shape, size of place when we gather. But for them, they were obediently called to make that, a symbol and a sign that was to go beyond them as a little group of people, but to shout out to the nations around them that their God reigns and that their God's presence with them was more important than anything else. The tide was turning and God's people at the start of Ezra were being called to a reset moment. I saw a t-shirt recently that said, there are no reset moments. And I wanted to go up to the person but resisted. Um, And I wanted to say, there is with God. (laughs) There's always a reset moment. Doesn't matter how young or old you are, there is a reset moment with God. Thank goodness. The tide was turning for God's people. It was time again to step up and be counted as the ones who would love God, who would listen to his voice and would hold steadfast to his ways. And this book of Ezra, as we look at it, is going to be so relevant to us in the West today because it's a call to fight against becoming lukewarm and to keep on building for the kingdom of God. 
It's a shout out to us to remind us that it's worth it. And it's so beautiful when we hold on to God. After all, it says at the end of our precious book, the Bible, it says to him or to her who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, so the call to you and I is, come on, come and hop up on the throne with me. Yes, there's plenty of room. Yes, you who don't deserve to be here, I invite you up. I have made you worthy. Well done for loving me, for trying to hold on to my ways and for listening to my voice. Hold steadfast in these things and come join me. Be my family. Come and sit right next to me on the throne. Oh, yeah. And there's room for your friends too. Call them in. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray over all of us that you'd breathe a refreshment of your sovereignty into our hearts and minds. That where we are carrying big things in our lives or concerns for nations or the world, or where we're carrying smaller things but that mean something to us, may we know that we can entrust them into your hands that you are sovereign over the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows of the tide, you are sovereign. Even as we go through the valley of the shadow of death, you are sovereign. And your invitation to us is so precious to join in your kingdom that goes on forever and ever. And as we look at this book, help us to have that spiritual checkup. How are we doing at loving you, at listening to your voice, and of holding steadfast to you? Holy Spirit, where we might need grace for one or all of those things, would you come and Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Grace us to follow you, to surrender to you. Amen.